because Joseph is a poet. My son has said such things to me like, Dad, you know what happened last night? I had a dream within a dream. First day of school, he came back and he was all excited and said, Dad, Mom, you'll never guess what happened. I went to school today and I accidentally fell in love. Yeah? That's a poet, right? Well, that's not the best part. He didn't just fall in lo- accidentally fall in love with one little girl. It was three, right? <laughs> My son, after he first became a Christian, we were talking about creation and the way things were, and he looked at me, and he said, Dad, why did Satan fall? That's really deep. And I thought to myself, reflected a little bit before I answered, and I'm like, that is the question, right? That's the thing all the theologians are fighting about. So I thought about it, paused, then I turned and said, Hey, Mom, <laughs> Joseph has a question for you. But he's also asking all these questions. And one time he asked me a simple question, but quite profound. He said, we were talking about friendship and relationship. And he said, Dad, how do you know when you can trust someone? Today, we're coming before the Lord. It's Communion Sunday. We're before the cross. And one of the points of Communion Sunday is that we are to be honest. That's what moves us on this Sunday. We are coming before Christ, and in a way, we're trying to be intimate. And that takes honesty and real transparency. Let's think about that question. Who are the people that you really trust? The people that are in my life that I really trust are people that are honest. Honest with me and transparent. Sometimes we know people that are really blunt, yeah? And we associate that with honesty. Some of us are really blessed with blunt people in our life, yeah? And for all you blunt people out there, God bless you. You're awesome. You keep the rest of us honest. But I think honesty goes a little bit further than that. It's about standing before the cross. It's about standing before the table and doing it honestly and in an intimate relationship with our Lord and Savior. And as I've thought about this, my thoughts have taken me back to the beginning, to the garden, where we see Adam and Eve, and they're in the garden, and they're innocent, and it talks about how God walked in the garden, and there's that relationship, and they're naked. I've had this analogy that I thought of, like, when I start my day, wake up in the morning, give it completely to God, and stand there naked before God and say, God, I'm yours, this day's yours. Do with it what you want, do with me what you want. And that's a real comforting thought, it's an exciting thought, but that's also, lots of times, a terrifying thought. Because standing before God with nothing to hide causes tension in me. There's tension. I think that's a good thing. I've been reading the Chronicles of Narnia with Joseph and Georgia, and one of the things is just the great description of Aslan. Aslan has this beautiful golden mane, and he's strong, and he's big, and beautiful deep brown eyes. But C.S. Lewis uses another adjective as well. He says Aslan's beautiful, but then he says Aslan is terrible. And C.S. Lewis was a master writer, and he did this so that we would really think about it. He did it deliberately. Because I think sometimes when we talk about holiness, it gets a little abstract. 
But there are two sides. God is love. There's grace and mercy. But there's also this side of justice to God. And I think in the West, a lot of times we don't like to think about justice because when we think about justice, that means judging, right? And we don't want to be judged. But for the vast majority of the world, the fact that God is just is a real comfort. All the hate, all the things done to the innocent, the brutal violence committed against the innocent around the world, done in hate, will be answered for. There will be justice. God is just. In the Old Testament, we have a whole book that talks about the fear of the Lord and the awe and the reverence, and it all mixes together in this reality And I want to say to you, it's the same thing. It's both terrible and beautiful at the same time. When we stand before the Lord of mercy and experience all his love and grace, it's the same as when we're standing before the holy, just God. We're in this series. Everyone's welcome. Nobody's perfect and anything's possible. And there's tension. And tension is not a bad thing. It's what propels us forward in our faith. It's what's moved us out. But it's all mixed up. I'm not a smart guy, okay? The only way I can explain this and how this really relates to life today and tomorrow is that it's all mixed up. And I thought this last week as I was praying about this message, I internally debated about whether or not I should share with you how my mind really works, right? It's all messed up. There are times, did I say messed up? That's from last week's sermon, right? The Greek. (laughs) It's all mixed up. There's uh, times when I'm having conversations with someone, and I pause, right? And there's this audible voice inside my head that says, George, the pause is too long. This is getting awkward. Just choose one of the voices and say it out loud, okay? (laughs) And you think I'm joking, but just driving home last night from dinner, Terry looked at me and she said, who are you talking to? And I'll tell you why she caught me, because I was making hand gestures, right? (laughs) When I debate with myself, I make hand gestures. My tendency, when I look at some of this seemingly contradictory stuff in our faith walk, I want to have real set boundaries, real clear categories. It's either this or it's that. I'm either like this or I'm like that. But... I think that's just my finite being trying to understand the infinite God. And I think the only way that I know how to do it is to mix it up. So that's our big theological point this morning. When you go and tell your friends what the sermon was about, mixed up. Yeah, I'm truly very, very sorry. That's all I got. (laughs) Everyone is welcome. Grace and truth. There's a tension there. And Kevin said something leading up to this message, and he's repeated it, and it's something that I think we should just have in our back pocket. When we're bringing people in, when we're going out, when we're living that life, we come into contact with sinners, and there's grace and truth when that happens. But in our back pocket, our default is mercy. Mercy sees past the sin and sees the image bearer. That changes how we relate with everyone. We are to be tenderhearted and merciful. Mercy is our default. In this section of the series, Nobody's Perfect, there's a tension. Last week was sinner, and we looked at Acts 10 and 11. 
We saw Peter was this saint, right? He is this hero of faith. And when I think about this, when I think about saint, I picture Peter in a big cathedral, stained glass, doing this with his hands, and it's overwhelming, right? There's a tension. My premise for this morning is that in order to be a saint, we must never forget that we are sinners. It's mixed up. Peter was both. Peter was very honest. There was a struggle. He wasn't perfect, but it goes further. In order to be a saint, you must first admit that you're a sinner. And honesty is the real key. Honesty is key. There is a reason why Satan is called the father of lies. The root of all sin is lie. Greed, lust, gossip of any kind, all has their roots in lie. It's a lie about who we are. It's a lie about our identity. The first sin was pride. Lucifer fell because of pride and then sin entered into the world because he's trying to convince us of something. He's trying to tell us that we're something that we're not. It's covered with lies. And lies lead to destruction. Once we become liars, we have destroyed everything. First, we end up destroying ourselves. We're lying to ourselves about who we are. But it doesn't just stop with us. Once we have convinced ourselves and we've lied to ourselves long enough, we'll start lying to the people around us. We destroy relationships. We destroy hearts. We destroy. We must be honest. And I believe that as we come here this morning, we are all striving to be honest. I believe that. The point is not to beat ourselves up. It's just the opposite. When we give it all to him, when we say, God, I failed, I want to love you more, I do love you, and we have this regeneration of a spirit and soul that is his spirit, when we look in the mirror in the morning and we're honest and we wake up, you wake up feeling dangerous. Isn't that how you want to feel? Isn't that how you want to start your day? Feeling dangerous for Jesus. That's the point. The mistake that we make is that we're people of either or not and both. And to get to that point, there needs to be a breaking. There needs to be repentance of knowing that nothing is in our own strength. Repentance in the Bible is always turning back to God. And it's important. The important things are repeated over and over and over again. Repentance is mentioned over a hundred times in the Bible. It's truly accepting his mercy, turning back to God, accepting his love and grace. But to do that, means you have to get out of the grip of whatever has you. You have to repent. What does drive us? What does motivate us? All of us have different motivations, different drives, different interests. Would you agree that there are some things that you are really passionate about, that you're really interested in, and there are other things that you really could care less about? That is revealing your heart, right? We are in marriages with different desires, right? That's where a lot of the conflict comes in, because we have different desires. Have you asked yourself the question, what makes you, you? Is it your ideas? Is it your thoughts? Is it your actions? It's your desires. We are most basically what we crave, Ideas and principles will be brought in later to justify our desires. 
but our basic longings, that primal urge is always the yearning. Your individuality is determined by what you desire. If that's true, then a radical change in our desires and longings will mean a radical change in our personhood. Something new comes into being, and that's what Jesus and John, Peter, Paul, all call new birth, regeneration. The reason that the New Testament says that we are born again in new hope is because we cease, stop pinning our hopes, our desires on the things of this world, and we pin it all on Jesus. That's what it means to be born again. And the question is, has God's desire touched the whole of your life? Have you repented? And there's always a misconception. We think that repentance is a one-and-done deal. It's not. It's not on this timeline linear. It's more continual. It's our identity. It's our honesty. It's our integrity. A question we must ask ourselves is, do we have anything we regret? If you said no to that question, let me rephrase it. I'm not saying we have no honesty or integrity unless we do things that we regret. I'm saying we have already done plenty of things that we regret. The question, the honest question is whether or not we know what those things are. Do you know what the things that you've done are that you regret? It's, next, it's naked before the cross. It's communion Sunday. We are before the cross. We are sinners. We are saints. And I think the sinner thing, for a lot of us, is easy to figure out. It's easy to define. The saint thing is a little bit trickier. Part of it is remembering who we are in Christ. Jesus makes this real simple. In John chapter 21, 15 through 17, he's coming to us this morning and he's asking a simple question. John 21, verses 15 through 17. Jesus reinstates Peter. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. And again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said it to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because he asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all these things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Do you love our blessed Redeemer? I think about these kind of things, and I imagine myself in Peter's place, face to face with my Lord and Savior, and he's looking at me, and he's asking me, do you love me? Do you love me with your whole heart? And I think if I were honest, one of my responses, if I was Peter at this point, would be that I would feel unworthy. What does it mean to be a sinner and saint at the same time? Feeling unworthy of God's presence. If you have real faith, this is going to happen. 
We spend a lot of time trying to say, okay, I should feel like God loves me all the time. I should feel this at every moment. But in real life, in your real faith, being a sinner and saint means that's not going to happen. Being a sinner and saint means you're going to feel unworthy of God's presence many times. It started that way for Peter. Remember when Jesus is coming and he's calling them in Luke 5, 8, one of the first things that happens when Jesus meets Peter, Jesus performs this big miracle. They're out fishing and all these fish come up. And in the presence of that miracle, what does Peter say? He fell at Jesus' knees and he said, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. He sees this great miracle and his first response is, I can't have anything to do with this. I can't be part of it. I can't be this person of faith because I'm un." Worthy of this. A lot of times I feel unworthy. It's okay. It's part of being a sinner and saint all mixed up. Moses felt that way in the Old Testament. Isaiah felt that way. Mary felt that way. Peter felt that way. All the great people of faith have felt that way. It's honest. In a big sense, it's honest. He is God and I am not and I am unworthy being close to him. So there's an honest moment in that. But yet, God still does draw us near. I'm insecure. I doubt myself all the time. That's true. And for those of you that feel the same way, there's something that you need to know. Don't try so hard to feel worthy of the presence of God because the harder you try, the less you'll feel like it because you look at yourself in the mirror and you see that terrible loser that doesn't have anything worth giving. That's true. And there's another thing that we do. We tend to do all these good things and say, okay, my worth must be there. But we're doing them out of our own strength and our own self-pride. It's all focused on us, and it's not focused on him. So the only thing that you can do, the truth, the honest thing, is that Jesus made you worthy. The cross and the table, he's invited you in, just accept it. You are worthy because of him. Being a sinner and saint, that's where it starts. Being a sinner and saint also means that we're going to have doubt. I see this in Peter. It happened to Peter. In Matthew chapter 14, 29 through 30, it says this. Well, I'll go back to 28. Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, tell me, come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and he was beginning to sink. He cried out to the Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. Ye of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? So here's Peter, right? He's in the boat. He's the one that gets out of the boat, and I imagine myself there. Where would I be? I would be sitting in the boat with a life jacket saying, Good job, Peter. Go for it. I'll be right here if you need me. He's doing something awesome. He steps out onto water, right? That was something I always wanted to do as a little kid. That is something, big step of faith. But then what happens? He sees the wind, and he sees the waves, and it starts splashing up, and he has that moment of doubt, and he starts to sink. That's going to happen to us, too. 
There's going to be these kind of big moments in our faith where we're really doing something awesome and there's going to be that doubt. So if you're ever in the middle of that, look at what Peter did. Because what happens when he starts to sink? He cries out, Lord, save me. If you ever start to sink, here's what you do. Be honest. Don't pretend. Don't tell everyone everything is okay. Don't tell yourself everything is okay. If you're afraid, tell God that. Tell someone that you trust. If you doubt, tell God that. Tell someone you trust. You will harden your heart if you pretend. Faking is the worst thing. David cries out all the time. We see it in the Psalms. He's crying out, my God, where are you? I'm afraid. I'm having a hard time trusting God. Where are you today? It's okay. Faith is never the absence of doubt. It's in spite of that doubt, stepping outside of our own little story and having the courage to step into God's larger redemptive story. If you're honest, God will be with you. What does it look to be? What does it look like to be a sinner and saint? You're going to fall. You're going to fail. In Matthew 26, 33 through 35, continuing Peter's journey, says this. Uh, Back to 31. Jesus predicts Peter's denial. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, then the sheep and the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And the other disciples said the same. I never will. It will never happen to me. The moment that we think we're invincible... That's the moment it all falls apart. Being a sinner and saint means that we have to face the truth. Don't say it won't happen to you. That is pride. Luke 22, 54. And these are all, we're jumping back and forth between the Gospels, but these are all telling the same story. 22 verses 54 and following. Peter disowns Jesus. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him to the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. But they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down there together. Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This was the man that was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly, this fellow was with him, for he is Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord was spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside 
and he wept bitterly. I will never do that. I will never disown you. These are the never moments in our lives, and they will happen. You may have one right now. I would never commit that sin. I would never say that. God would never ask me to face this. But now you're facing it. What do you do in those never moments? When you feel unworthy, when you're filled with doubt, or when you have downright, outright failure. What do you do when you failed, when someone else has failed, when you feel like maybe God has failed you? You be honest. You come stripped down before Jesus. There's a real point in here in Luke 22. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Peter and Jesus' eyes lock at this very moment. What kind of look do you think was in Jesus' eyes at this very moment? Hurt, yeah, sure. But I also think there was love, compassion. There was love and compassion too. Because Jesus did not come to condemn this world, but to save it. There was no condemnation. I know. There have been times when Jesus has looked straight at me, where I've locked eyes with Jesus. He has corrected me. He will correct all of us. And when he does, even then, he does it in love. So when you're in the midst of this failure, when you're in the midst of all this, don't get focused in on the doubt or the unworthiness or all these feelings or even the big failure. What you do is you hold that look with Jesus and you look into his eyes because you will see love and compassion. The second thing you do is you go outside and you weep bitterly. You weep. Instead of blaming others, instead of raging in anger, instead of making excuses, just some honest tears. Honest tears for your failure, honest tears for your friend's failure, honest tears. The third thing, you turn back. You repent. You turn back to what God has for you. You turn back to his love. You repent. Yes, the failures in life are real. I know that. Some of the failures have caused so much hurt that they're going to stay with you for the rest of your life. I know that. But God has not failed you. He is real. He loves you so very much. And he does have a plan for you so that no matter where you are, no matter what you're feeling inside, he moves through the failures with you. He has a purpose for you, so turn back. The last thing you do is you go back to John 21 and Jesus is standing face to face with you and he's asking, do you love me? You say it. I love you. And you feed his sheep. You are redeemed. You are dangerous. Live like it. There are those who are facing maybe some of the same hurt that you went through. Maybe the same, the same doubt that you had. Maybe some of the same feelings of unworthiness. God wants you to be in their lives. 
to be their encouragement, to be their strength. Because of your unique experience, you can encourage people, people the way no one else could. But there's other people that are hurting. This is part of it. Feed my sheep. We have people struggling. We live in a fallen world. Death has entered because of the first sin. And there's more to life than just going back and forth between empty sin and doing what's right. There's more. There are those among us that are struggling with selfishness. that are struggling with greed. There are those among us that put work before family. There are those among us that have been diagnosed with autism. We have a group that meets here. Many were born with Down syndrome. There are those among us that live with regret from the past choices we've made, and we let that haunt our lives. There are some of us here that live with fear, fear that our health will fail, fear of financial security. There are those among us that struggle with trust. We don't really trust God has our best interest. We're afraid to give it all to him because of what he might ask. We're afraid of the cost. There are those among us that are battling with cancer. Those that we love. We need to tell them that we love them. We need to show them Jesus' love. There's a musical group called Mercy Me that has a song, Flawless. We need to show them the cross. Whatever it is, whatever the struggle, whatever the battle, no matter the bumps, no matter the bruises, no matter the scars, the truth is that the cross has made you flawless. Struggling with doubt, flawless. Struggling with greed, flawless. Diagnosed with autism, flawless. Living in fear, flawless. Battling cancer, flawless. You are flawless. The cross has made you flawless. What does it mean to be a saint and a sinner all mixed up? You are victorious because of his victory. Peter is reinstated in John 22, 21. It's no accident that Jesus says three times, do you love me? It's purposeful because of what the denial was three times. He is giving Peter authority. Peter becomes the rock. You have victory, claim it. You are a saint. I think when you boil real faith down, it all boils down to three words. I love you. This is your table. We love you. We remember you. These are not just words. This is the whole of our being. This is where we're honest. Has God touched the whole of your life? To do this, we need to come before him. We need to quiet our souls before him. Being quiet is part of it. And since we've come back to North America, one thing I've noticed is it's a little hard to do here because North America is noisy. It's busy, but we still do it. No matter where you are, if you're coming back from a deep failure, if God seems silent or distant, or if you feel that your walk is pretty good, you come silent before God when you quiet your soul, when you repent. I know this. The first thing you will hear when you're quiet is, I love you. God says it first. Jesus always says it first. 
we are here before the two greatest reminders that Jesus said it to you. I love you. This is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. I love you. So when we're quiet and we come face to face with Jesus, our response back is, I love you, Jesus. I'm yours. It's our act of worship. That's worship. It's intimacy with Christ. Our desires are your desires. We are saying that we love you. It's thankful. We remember your mercy. I love you. This is Communion Sunday. Jesus is asking, do you love me? All our response is mixed up. It's the beauty. It's the joy. It's the terribleness. It's the awe, the reverence, the sacrifice, and the victory. We are broken. We are dangerous. There's gratitude, mercy. It's love. It's all mixed up into emotion that we don't even have a name for. And it's supposed to be all mixed up at once. You are sinner and saint at the same time, and that's the most beautiful thing. If I've prayed about these moments, as I have, and come face to face with Jesus, maybe the best word to describe all the seemingly contradictory emotions rolled up into one infant emotion and trying to understand how that plays into my life and I live it out for Jesus with my heart fully in tune with his heart, with my desires, his desires being my desires, the word that keeps coming back to me is hallelujah. I've asked Joel to close our service with a song, hallelujah. Praise to the Lord. That's what I think worship is. When you come to the point where it's so mixed up and your soul cries out with just one word, you're standing there created to creator, redeemed to redeemer, helpless to helper. In Revelation, it tells us that there's no need for the sun, the moon, or stars, and I picture all that light, and it's God's glory and his holiness that's lighting everything up. I am overwhelmed. And I look at Revelation 19, and it's everybody gathered there together, and it's the hallelujah. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to God. Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. There is a voice from the throne saying, Praise our God, all his servants, all who fear them, both great and small. Hallelujah. For our Lord God is almighty. He reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad. Give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. Amen. Hallelujah. We are before the cross this morning. This is Communion Sunday. In a very real and public way, the way that Jesus has commanded us to do, we have come before him. We prayed the Lord's Prayer this morning. We sung it. Hallowed be your name. This morning, right now, we are on hallowed ground. We are on holy ground. Jesus is asking right now, face to face, do you love me? Let's pray. We love you. Dear Jesus, we love you. We repent. We accept your love. We are yours. Amen. Hallelujah.